episode 407 of the Cyber Law Podcast. That's 407 episodes without a single advertisement, I want to point out, other than this, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express don't reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our family, our pets, really maybe not even ours three weeks from today. Joining me on the uh, News Roundup for the day, Jordan Schneider, China tech analyst for the Rhodium Group and host of the excellent China Talk podcast and newsletter. Jamil Jaffer, who's the founder and executive director of the National Security Institute and really the hardest working man in national security. It's just amazing what Jamil does. He is uh, doing this podcast, I should say, from his sick bed. He has COVID and he is still rallying. Jamil, thank you. Thanks for having me, Stuart. Okay, and Nate Jones, the co-founder of Culper Partners, and as far as we know, not suffering from any diseases on this podcast. Nate, great to have you. Always good to be here. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for today's program. So I think the big story of the week, there's a lot of, of pretty big stories, but was the release of an EU draft directive that basically says to big tech, you know, that end-to-end encryption thing, it's great. We just, we really like it as long as when you're told you can find anybody who is trying to groom a a kid for uh, sexual abuse, Uh, you can find any child sexual abuse materials that are being distributed. So, you can keep your end-to-end encryption as long as you can do all those things. And it's provoking, I'd say, a modest amount of attention, um, less than I would have expected. And uh, I think this might really be the end, as a practical matter, of end-to-end encryption as it's been rolled out by Silicon Valley. Jamil? Well, you know, Stuart, I mean, this is not something new. We've heard about this discussion uh, in the context of the quote unquote going dark debate for many years, concerns expressed by the FBI um, and other intelligence agencies about the ability to access messages and be communicated through end to end encryption. Uh, we heard, man, it must have been, what, three, four, five years ago, FBI Director Chris Ray talking about the concerns he had seeing ISIS radicalizing people in the United States and then having those targets move to encrypted forms of communication, including WhatsApp and Signal, and then losing men. So, and then we've, of course, heard about these concerns in the context of child sex abuse material, CSAM, for a long time as well. And uh, so it's no surprise that the government in Europe is looking to address these concerns by requiring acts of material. We've talked about the need uh, for lawful access, whether it's in the terrorism context or the child sex abuse context for many, many years. We've heard industry pushback about it, you know, and privacy groups pushback about it for the better part of a decade. But the question is, is how do you find that middle ground, right? Where do you find that path forward where you can maintain the benefits of end-to-end encryption while permitting lawful access? Because lawful access is something that the government's going to need at the end of the day. And the question is, how do you maintain end encryption while having it? There are those who say it's impossible. The, the world will come to an end if the government has lawful access. The internet will break fundamentally and we'll have no transactions ever take place again. That, of course, is not true. The question is just, how do you find that middle ground? And is the regulatory approach being adopted by the European Union the right answer? Probably not. Is there a way to find a path forward for industry and government and privacy groups? Probably yes. Have they been able to do so thus far? No. So it's no surprise. Here comes the big regulator with the big stick saying, you have to do it now or t- or face a penalty. Once again, if industry and government had just found a way to work together effectively instead of being hit with a regulatory stick, 
we might find a better path forward than silly European regulations of this kind. Nate, you've followed this debate for a long time, too. Is Are we going to see the European Union basically bail out the FBI here? I, I think the jury's still out on that, to be honest. You know, we've seen this repeatedly with Europe. You know, in the U.S., these trade-offs, as Jamil described them, have kind of impeded action, right? People haven't been just able to get any policy proposals over the finish line because they're worried about the implications for end-to-end encryption. In Europe, they seem to just be pretending like those implications don't exist. And, you know, this isn't the first time. You could argue that things like the interoperability requirements in the DMA will have the same effect. And yet there, they're telling companies to make their services interoperable and to offer end-to-end encryption. And it's not clear that these things are actually technically possible. And so a lot, I think, a lot of pressure, I think, is going to be placed on the standards and procedures for enforcement of this kind of thing. You know, we saw in the DMA context again that folks have come out and said, well, there will be a process for determining whether you really have to do interoperability, and if so, how, and we'll figure out a way to preserve end-to-end encryption there. It, it's and the possible same thing is true that you'll in this see order, something that, emerge here. Exactly. Yeah, the di- directive and, says, we will tell you, we'll give you an order saying you must go look for this stuff, you must find a way to look for it, and then yeah. we'll negotiate with you, or at least we'll talk to you about how you're doing that. But the fact is, when end-to-end encryption, as it's envisioned by the enthusiasts means no one can get access to those communications, including the company that enables it. And as soon as you say, that's what we have to have, then there's no way that you can have end-to-end encryption and still have the company take any responsibility at all for what's being passed over its system. That's right. And that's why I think a lot of this is going to come down to willpower in the EU and whether they're really willing to stick to their guns and force people to do this. That, I think, remains to be seen. The other wild card here is the kind of proposal that Apple put forward last year, right, where you do client-side right. scanning and technically it doesn't you know, affect the integrity of end-to-end encryption. To me, there are some signs in this legislation that that's sort of what they have in mind. You see them anticipating and, and trying to mitigate against a lot of the critiques that emerged of Apple in terms of false positives in terms of it being repurposed for things other than CSAM detection and Europe trying to get out in front and, you know, discourage people or encourage them to do better on on weeding out false positives and making it unlawful to use any technology that emerges here for other purposes. And so it may be that that's kind of where they're looking to push people. And then the question will become, who are they going to push to do it? And, you know, is this going to be aimed at primarily at device manufacturers, operating systems, or are they going to, to go at communication services and others as well? So my theory on this is that uh, it's going to be really, it's really complicated to do what Apple proposed. And Apple has yeah. kind of given up on the idea of doing it and satisfying people. It's expensive. I think the answer that industry will settle on is we will break the end-to-end encryption conditionally using tools that only we know how to use, and we'll call it end-to-end encryption, uh, and that'll be our solution, that we'll use the tools that we have for breaking it when we're directed to do so by an authority that we feel obliged to obey. And I, I understand they will be cautious, they will tread cautiously here. 
But European regulators have the bit between their teeth on treating Silicon Valley. Uh, and yeah. uh, they'll just say, yeah, well, we've got privacy protections built into the directive. Uh, yeah. And if you don't provide privacy too, then we'll give you a 5% of global revenue fine. So that ought to solve that problem. And uh, now we can trust the companies because they will live in fear of European regulators. So my sense is the end of the end-to-end -end encryption enthusiasm that came out of engineers in Silicon Valley and all of civil society uh, that is funded by Silicon Valley, I think we can see the end of it from here. Well, Stuart, you know, to me, this just shows the case in point about why it's so important that when we identify these issues in our society where there's clearly two goods that need to be addressed, right, the protection of safety and security for the public, whether it's in Europe or the United States, right, and the privacy of our citizens and their people and their transactions, how industry and government and third and privacy groups need to come together to identify the solution to these problems rather than waiting for government to figure it out. Right, Because when you have government figured out, you have stupid ideas like GDPR, which ultimately look like they're good on privacy, but actually terrible on privacy and not actually particularly helpful, costing huge amounts of money in implementation with very little benefit. You have dumb ideas like DMA creating fake interoperability that then just causes more cybersecurity problems in the long run. And then you have dumb things like this, where they mandate things that, are, that may or may not be technically feasible. Instead, what makes a lot more sense is industry and government and privacy was coming together and saying, hey, let's find a technically feasible way to solve these problems while protecting privacy as much as possible. The problem you have here is that privacy groups dig in and say, "There's we can't, it's all or nothing. We can either have all privacy or any small glimmer of government access means that it'll destroy everything and we're done. They convince the, the companies to go along with this and then the companies pay on the back end because ultimately regulators say, that's stupid. We're not going to operate like that. We're going to find a path forward and they punish the companies. There's got to be an effort to find the real middle ground ahead of crises, because at the end of the day, crises are what result in bad policy. Here we see this coming down from the EU. We've seen it over and over and over again. And yet industry and government and, and, and privacy groups seem to think, well, we'll just keep kicking the ball down the road and be surprised when the crisis happens that we're going to both lose. We're going to lose privacy. We're going to get extra government regulation, and we're going to end up in a result where nobody wants to end up after something bad has already happened. No, I want to end up here. I, I want to be in a position where the government can, if they're <laughs> looking for, for child exploiters, can find them. I'm sorry. Oh, I, that, that's where no, I want to be. That's, that's where I want to be too, Stuart. But the problem is we could have gotten here long ago if groups like EFF and CDT would simply come to the table and actually negotiate instead of just saying, no, 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 we like to raise money on these issues. Any, any amount of having access to encryption means we're going to destroy the internet, right? The fact of the matter is that's not true. Nobody thinks that because a locksmith can open my door, I shouldn't lock my door or that we shouldn't have, we shouldn't have Fourth Amendment warrants. Everyone accepts that if you can come into my home and look through my underwear drawer, that the government should have asked at some point, what makes our iPhone somehow special that you can get into my underwear drawer but can't get into my iPhone? That's silly. That's never been the American rule. It's certainly not the European rule, which is a lot more regulatory. So it strikes me... The right approach here is find the path before this happens, before government steps in, instead of where we are today with stupid European regulation. All right. Uh, so let's move to stupid American regulation, uh, or at least potentially stupid. Jordan, there is a, apparently a very serious movement inside the U.S. government to designate Hickvision as a specially designated national, which is basically the equivalent of a terrorist nation. No one 
No American can do business with them in any fashion. You, you, you can't have a transaction with them, either paying them or receiving funds from them. I, no American company can do it. No bank that clears its transactions through New York, which all of them do because they all uh, end up using dollars. This is really, really aggressive. And it's because they have been a reasonably enthusiastic participant in some of the Chinese regulation, if not oppression, of Uyghurs, including in the most kind of notorious example. They said, we have AI that will allow you to recognize Uyghur features on the street in case you want to uh, do something to a Uyghur that you find there. So they're not a company with a good human rights record, but designating them as if the equivalent of a terrorist strikes me as very aggressive and maybe not such a good use of that authority. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little agnostic about it. First off, because Hikvision really is the worst of the worst. I mean, they are very sort of loud and proud of their support of the uh, human rights uh, abuses that have been happening in Xinjiang and around the country directed at ethnic minorities in China. So, you know, it's not like the Treasury Department is picking a soft target here. That said, it is a really big deal putting a giant firm on a, a specially designated nationals list, which is basically like is populated by ISIS affiliates. And the level that it... Um, the level which it could potentially come down on the firm is even further reaching than what you saw with Huawei in the direct product world, which had a really major impact on how Huawei did business. That to say, it's not a straightforward thing to rip Hikvision out of not only the US, but the rest of the world. I mean, just recently, the federal government applied for a waiver to be able to keep purchasing Hikvision products through September of 2020 because there are so many of these cameras which are you know cheap and affordable and easy to use and, and more cost competitive than their Western counterparts when doing... Uh, regular surveillance work. Hikvision also has a really extensive presence across many American allies, which would have to, if they wanted to sort of respect uh, U.S. law, you know, be forced into the same policy decisions that the U.S. would be um, implementing by putting them on the SDN list. So uh, one, one question. It's my impression that the U.S. has put enormous sanctions and used the specially designated national designate against a host of Russian entities, Russian banks, practically everybody is on that list. And it's my impression that Chinese banks are basically going along with it. It's obviously awkward not yep. to from their point of view. But at some point, the Chinese government is going to say, nope, that's it. We're not cooperating. And let's see if the U.S. government really has the clout to punish our banks and our other institutions. And this feels like it could trigger that, uh, that crisis. And I'm not sure we come through. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. Some commentators like Bateman, who worked in the federal government for a long time before transitioning into the Carnegie endowment, are arguing that this might be the straw that tips the camel's back. And then you can really start a tech war where the Chinese are sort of pushing on American firms. But that said, it's important to understand the context right now of the Chinese economy. You know, they just put out revised numbers saying that they're shrinking. It's not necessarily that um, the Chinese government would be particularly excited to take steps which if they were going to have any impact would by necessity uh, you know lead to loss of jobs in China and and lower growth outcomes and okay. it's not like they're any less committed towards you know bringing about a, a self-sufficient future so I'm not necessarily uh, convinced that the argument that you know there's all of this dry powder that the Chinese government are just waiting to use in response to an escalatory move by the US okay uh, Jamil yeah, I mean, look, I think Jordan's fundamentally right, which is, you know, I don't think anybody is advocating for full decoupling 
uh, on either side, the way that Bateman suggests might be in the offing if we do this. You know, I think the, the fact of the matter is that we rely on the Chinese just as much as they depend on us. And nobody's in the mood for getting in a massive decoupling effort where we completely separate from one another and try to run our economies as though they're not in, deeply interconnected. That being said, I think Jordan's exactly right. They're going after a nasty provider like Higvision with the most aggressive form of sanctions, the SDN list, is a way to really raise up this issue. We've been talking about the Uyghur issue for years and years and years. Two presidents in a row have called it a uh, genocide, and yet we've done precious little about it. In fact, to the contrary, we allowed the Beijing Olympics to go forward without so much as a real boycott. We had a, we had a sort of a fake diplomatic boycott that nobody paid any attention to, and off we went. So I think this is actually, I think the Biden administration to be credited if they, in fact, do roll out these things and press these up. And you know what? If it triggers a, something of, a, of the beginnings of a tech war with China, bring it on. Let's have that fight. Let's fight it out. And let's see what they do. I mean, the reality is they have been interning over a million Muslims for religious reasons in the Xinjiang province for way too long. We've allowed it to go for way too long without any real penalties. Now's the time to put strength behind our words, to put steel and iron behind those words. And these type of sanctions are exactly the right approach for the U.S. government to be taking. So I'm guessing that they will that, that we could bankrupt Hickvision and there would still be a million detainees in China. I, I question the effectiveness of this. It feels symbolic. And we have a whole host of national security products that are national security threats that we're still buying and spreading around the world. I'd rather spend my effort on that. But Jordan? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting because if you follow this to the logical conclusion, like what's the next company that you're going to buy if you can't buy Hickvision anymore? It's two other leading Chinese providers of relatively cheap and affordable surveillance cameras who also have, you know, awful connections to Xinjiang. So, you know, Biden has been speaking for a while now about how he wants to center human rights in the conversation around U.S. and China and technology. And there have been moves to sanction a number of firms. This would be a real escalation. However, I would like from a regulatory perspective, I would like to put on everyone's calendar June 16th and the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act coming online. This has been flying a little bit under the radar, but basically the Congress said that nothing can come from Xinjiang. And now Customs has $25 million a year to make that a reality. The extent to which that um, policy becomes more uh, reified through a potentially dramatic escalation in the number of firms which aren't uh, allowed to import into the U.S. is another vector to watch where you're looking at China uh, human rights related uh, regulatory moves by this administration. Jamil, last word. Yeah, look, I think the Xinjiang Forced Labor Prevention Act is exactly the right approach to be taking. But I do think that amping pressure up on companies like Hickvision and look, if the next companies should be on the list too, let's put them on the list. If it's DJI, let's put them on the list. So it's so sad that American consumers won't be able to buy their kids cheap drones at Christmas for their or for their birthday parties. Too bad. Plenty of other <laughs> stuff to buy out there. You don't rely on it. I'm actually a big fan. I actually think the American people ought to be considering boycotting directly a lot of these providers. Yeah, you can't buy Huawei phones today. You shouldn't be buying them at, at duty-free either because they're so cheap, right? A lot of Americans are bringing those phones in, using them on our networks, buying them abroad. It is ridiculous that the American people, we haven't taken yet the South Africa apartheid approach to the Uyghur problem. We've talked about it like it's a South Africa apartheid problem, but we've, we've hardly put that kind of emphasis behind it. If it takes Congress putting pressure on the administration and the administration putting pressure on China, so be it. Let's do it. Good on the Biden administration for going down this road. So the last year or so, maybe two, China has been doing a pretty good job of putting pressure on Chinese tech itself. The tech clash was every bit as real in China as in the United States and Europe. And now it looks as though 
the whole effort to rein in technology is caught up in what could be a fight between Premier Lee and is it President Xi, Chairman Xi at any rate, over how aggressively to pursue a kind of leftist view of industry and how much to say, no, this is our economic future. We have to save these platforms and make sure that they are not regulated to the point where they're not competitive. Jordan, is it really a a matter of what amounts to Kremlinology, how technology is going to be regulated in China? I mean, it's a real mess sitting here as a China tech analyst trying to give you an answer on these questions. But I think it's I think the the fact that there is some tension in the approach towards regulating, you know, tech in particular, the economy in general, and probably in the most salient fashion, what to do about COVID and the COVID zero policy is starting to emerge. And we have seen a bit of a back and forth over the past few months now of the Chinese government seemingly of two minds on just how far it wanted to push the tech crackdown in the context of all these firms losing like half of their market capitalization over the past six months, primarily driven, um, you know, and driven in part by COVID, but also by the regulatory uncertainty that the past um, few years of moves by various um, bureaucracies in the Chinese government have contributed. So, you know, there are all these like very fun sourced pieces by Ling Ling Wei of the Wall Street Journal that talk about, oh, you know, people are uncertain and folks are rallying around Lee and Lee's really pissed that she is taking the Chinese people and the Chinese economy down the road, which isn't ultimately sustainable. And that dynamic is really starting to play out. It's going to be really interesting to watch this meeting that a lot of the senior leadership are going to be having with some of the leaders of the China tech universe in the next few days, because we've seen a switch in uh, a slight shift in rhetoric out of the state council where they talk about how they're going to be nicer to these firms and, you know, potentially be more orderly and wrap up this regulatory crackdown. But we haven't actually seen real policy shifts and announcements of support and sort of wrapping up of investigations, which would really signal that the debate has sort of been settled within the party on whether or not that this is a done deal. And I think, you know, she in particular, it's pretty clear, hasn't made his mind up yet, because if he had, we would have already uh, seen that because it's not like these firms haven't been begging for help for the past few months now. So Jordan, let me roll out my pet uh, theory and you can tell me, is it uh, plausible or not? My pet theory is that the Chinese Communist Party watches Russia because they think that's where the disastrous examples have been set for them in the, the past. And they might be saying, you know, if you give all power to one guy who runs on a nationalist platform and there's no checks on him, every once in a while, he just goes down a crazy path that nobody can stop. And it's a disaster for the company country. So I just wonder if they aren't starting to think maybe our old system where there were checks and balances inside the party on everybody, including the leader, had value that we're starting to see the Russian system has thrown away. Yeah, you threw me this one last time, and I'm not, I'm not really sure what to do with it, Stuart. Um, yeah, so you're, you're not okay. Yeah, that, that, I think that's an answer. You think it's full, I'm full of well, it. Well, I thank mean, you. <laughs> yeah. Look, how, how do I answer this? I think uh, I think there have to be people in the system who are not happy that she has been able to concentrate enough power. The way that changes is there is enough of a sort of concentration of forces and the ability to sort of, you know, collaborate and speak to each other and, you know, plan and conspiracize that, that things trend in another direction. And I just, 
you know, very low. You don't see that very happening. low confidence view, but and it's also the sort of thing. It's like you know, I've been reading all this coverage of I, I've been reading a lot of research about American Sovietology during the Cold War and the fact that like you know the U.S. missed you know com- basically every American Soviet expert completely missed the fact that the Soviet Union was teetering and and on the verge of you know annihilation in the late uh, 1980s. Gives me even less confidence that we have any idea of what the internal machinations are. You know, it is possible. This is probably right now is probably a moment where there's been the most frustration at people being at, at, at Xi's rule, probably even more than his lockdown, probably even more than his changing of the constitution, because you have 200 million people and counting who are stuck at home all day thinking about how pissed they are that they're stuck at home all day, party officials included, right? So it, it wouldn't be surprising yep. that people would, you know, in their heart of hearts being, I'm so, think I'm so fed up, I, I can't take this anymore. But at the end of the day, just being fed up does not a change of power in a Leninist organization make. You need to have sort of instruments um, and dials to pull and the ability to kind of work together to communicate and, you know, plan steps to make any sort of change happen. And, you know, I would bet against that being something that we'll see in the near term. Okay. So the decoupling and the effort to get risky products out of our infrastructure, people are agreed it's a good idea, but it's taking forever. Nate Kaspersky has been an object of suspicion for a decade, and now we hate everything Russian and we're sanctioning Russians everywhere. And it's apparently still making $95 million a year in the U.S. market. What gives? I have no idea why people are still using it after all of this. <clears throat> you know, even if you're not entirely convinced of the potential ramifications, like I just don't know what's keeping people on it at Good this point. Good graphic design. Um, they got a nice logo. <laughs> that I must guess, be it. I guess. There are alternatives out there. Why they're not using them, I have no idea. So they white you know, label the, a bunch of their stuff into a, other people's systems so that you don't see their, actually their graphic design and their logo. Is that what is preventing companies from from pulling it out? I I honestly don't know. You know, I do think that, you know, once, I think that where this is headed is, you know, the administration, despite the headline about NSA and probing, I I think that, you know, it's not nearly as nefarious as it sounds. I think they're trying to get a sense of just how widespread the use of this is. And I think that where this is likely going is to feed into this ongoing conversation about imposing sanctions on Kaspersky. And as we talked about last time I was on, you know, I don't think the reluctance there thus far has been about potential Russian retaliation. I think this is much more about what the implications are for companies and individuals in the U.S. and around the world who are using this stuff. And I think there are this is about quantification of that, number one. And number two, it's about trying to get people to move off it before they take that step. And so there yeah, may be maybe. some quiet conversations. I, I, but. I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna be more harsh. The supply chain system, the uh, executive order, it, which was under Trump and which the Biden administration kept and said we're not gonna do stupid things like just 
picking on TikTok. We're going to do this right. They assigned it to the Commerce Department to do investigations of dangerous stuff. I mean, it basically says there is stuff that shouldn't be in our economic infrastructure and we're going to find it and we're going to order people not to buy it, basically. And they handed that job, which is an enormous job and a really important one to the Commerce Department. And the Commerce Department, I think it's fair to say, has just booted it. They've had a year and they haven't done anything as far as we can see, except release a kind of you know, pretty minimal set of rules and announce that they're going to do this by order by order. Uh, I think they aren't staffed for it. They may not have the national security chops and certainly technical chops to do it. And I get the sense that folks like NSA and the Justice Department are just (laughs) saying, when are you going to do something? If you won't do it, why don't we just take over your job and do parts of it for you? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think you're seeing these other agencies get involved because they're pushing for sanctions. And I think commerce is probably one of the primary holdouts thus far. And that's sort of typical of the way they operate in the interagency process. And that's why I think you're seeing them take these kinds of steps to be able to counteract some of the arguments probably being advanced by commerce in those conversations. And, you know, as I said, lead to some private conversations between NSA and private companies or DOJ and private companies or all three to say, we need you to start moving off of this because we are likely to take some actions and you don't want to be caught flat footed. So switch to something else. And that makes sanctioning them then, I think, quite a bit easier if they're successful in that effort. Commerce Department has always had a role in national security, but kind of a reluctant one. They, they always hear and listen pretty closely to business criticism of national security regulations. So when you hand a program like this to the Commerce Department, you kind of have to expect a halting implementation, especially if there isn't a tradition of enforcing it with a bureaucracy that has kind of adopted those values. This is, you know, they're basically asking the Commerce Secretary, yeah, what do you think we ought to do? Uh, and she's going to reflect the business community's concerns, uh, which is fine, but I'm not sure they should determine whether something happens or not. Right. And, and that's what I was going to say. When your interagency process puts such a high priority on consensus, it gives commerce a lot of power in the conversations that like this that they're brought into, because one lone holdout can, if not slow things down, block them entirely. So here's two developments looking in two different directions on face recognition. There is a a real movement now to push back on the effort to regulate and ban facial uh, recognition systems, including police use of face recognition. Probably a dozen cities had uh, banned it. Vermont mostly banned it. Virginia said you can't do it without uh, approval. Virginia has now taken that law off the books and adopted a much more industry-friendly, it's not a, a complete lack of regulation, but basically it says, and it's a recognition of reality, if you can show us that uh, you're a better than 98% uh, effective at actually doing face recognition, and you don't have a significant racially or gender-biased result when you do it, the cities and states and law enforcement agencies that want to use it can use it. I think that's a big deal. That was a smart move by the industry to to go in and propose something that they thought they could live with, which is this. Most of the restrictions are things they don't do, like real-time face recognition for enforcement purposes. So I think that 
may mean that the tide is turning and finally people are beginning to recognize the science, which has for at least five years been showing that you can do face recognition accurately without significant bias. And the people who insist that this is a racist technology are, you know, they're not telling the truth. So this is good news. Uh, Less good news, Clearview ended up settling a a BIPA case, a uh, Biometric Identification Privacy Act from uh, Illinois, which is one of those, it's a a real trap for companies that says you have to get uh, a very specific form of consent before you can use biometrics and face recognition is biometrics. Uh, And so the fact that you collected all this data in public or from public uh, documents doesn't help you. You're still liable for $1,000 a pop uh, for every time you did it. And so the ACLU brought a lawsuit against Clearview AI under that and has now settled it on terms that dramatically, to my mind, uh, restrict what AI's, uh, Clearview AI's business can be. They can still sell this product to law enforcement in the U.S., but they can't sell it, uh, if I remember right, to private groups. They can't give it to individual law enforcement uh, officers to try out, and they had to pay the ACLU's legal fees. So maybe this was worthwhile, but I suspect Clearview AI is still liable for a class action for having scraped all that data. So I'm not sure they're out of the woods, which is the only reason I would have recommended that they take such a big hit in what they can sell and not sell. So, Nate. It's been a year since there was a uh, Trump era cyber order, maybe over a year, uh, telling all the agencies what to do about uh, improving their cybersecurity uh, posture, coming up with regs and changing their purchasing processes. I get the impression from the folks who've done the reviews that we're still waiting for a lot of that stuff to actually happen. Yeah, I think we are. I have not seen much progress myself. You know, I think the one thing that we have seen some progress on is the Trump administration's uh, National Security Presidential Memorandum 13, which granted, you know, greater authority to Cyber Command, a greater latitude, I guess, to engage in offensive cyber operations, at least those that don't rise to the level of a use of force. And this was in contrast to what was under the Obama administration, a sort of White House-led interagency approval process. There have been rumors that Biden would roll that back, and a Post report from last week suggests they're they're at least partially rolling that back. Um, it yeah, looks well, it was a, a little bit hair on fire, on and, and, <laughs> and, and now now it looks like they they smelled smoke, but there wasn't much hair on fire. Yeah, I mean, you know, it has, it sounds like requirements that they keep other agencies informed, keep the White House informed of what they're doing, at least explain their rationale if they're going to override the objections of another agency. You know, what I think this really is, is a sort of kinder, gentler White House-led interagency process, because if there's something bubbling up in the interagency that they are uncomfortable with, you better believe that's still going to be pulled into White House coordinated well, yes, interagency the, the, process. I, you were you were in the Obama administration uh, NSC process, so maybe you'll um, disagree with my characterization. But it was stalemate after stalemate, meeting after meeting. It was very hard to get a, a decision. And the people who were strap hangers, the agencies that were strap hangers, used that as a way of getting, of saying to uh, Cyber Command, you can do that if you can get past me, but uh, we're going to have meetings here until I'm satisfied. And by the time 
they were satisfied, the opportunity to use the tool or to carry out the operation might have passed. So it was an enormous lever. And the Trump administration getting rid of that kind of paralysis by analysis approach was wise. And their view was, we'll give you the responsibility, Cyber Command, and if you screw up, we'll hang you high. This sounds to me closer to that view than to the Obama administration everybody can put an oar in. Yeah, I think it's closer to that view in part because they had to write it this way to get it through the interagency process and keep certain people satisfied. My experience with the Obama administration was a little bit different. You know, there were some policy conversations that got talked to death for sure. And and there have been quite a few reports about that. Operations, in my experience, didn't get talked to death unless people wanted to talk them to death. And quite frankly, that helped weed out a lot of very bad ideas that if they had not been run through a White House interagency process, might have been allowed to just go forward and could have had uh, pretty significant ramifications. So I don't think the interagency process needs to slow things down. You know, it looks like they've done some things here to impose timelines on the coordination of these things, which, you know, again, can always be, you know, there can be exceptions to that rule, I assume, but they're trying to keep the trains moving. You know, what I think what I think this really comes down to is and what you're saying as well, Stuart, is that, you know, there's been a reluctance to act in this area. And I think this is less about processes, less about interagency objections. And it's been that we don't have a good grip on when we want to act and under what conditions. And that's what I think really needs to be worked out because it leaves everybody walking away from that table dissatisfied with the outcome. And I think that's where we really have to focus some energy here. So one of the issues that I remember being particularly hot uh, in the Obama era was, is it a violation of international law to go into the systems that are located in some third party in order to track and then attack someone from China or North Korea. And being able to follow the intrusions back through neutral countries was technically essential. But from a legal point of view, you probably should have gone to ask permission to go into a particular site that is located in a particular country. And by the time you got the permission, everybody had moved on. So it was a legal principle that didn't work if you were going to have an effective defense. I get the impression from reading about this that that debate is over and we're just doing it. We might give some notice. We might say, oh, by the way, you know, it's sort of like the Bruce Willis movie where the FBI says, yeah, when we uh, seize all your authorities and give orders to your men, we'll be sure to give you a call. Uh, (laughs) I I think that's right. I think this leaves a a lot more flexibility. It sounds like there may be more consultation than, you know, some in the Pentagon, for example, might prefer. But I, I think it'll be, you know, dependent on the facts and circumstances of a given case. If you're going to see you know, something uh, happened in Germany, technically, for example, and it's going to have significant ramifications in Germany, I would suspect you would see some consultation and notice. If it's likely to fly under the radar and nobody's going to notice in those cases, it sounds like you'll have a green light to go forward without having a conversation with local officials. Jamil? 
Well, look, I mean, I think, you know, Stuart, it's funny how these same debates that are, that are sort of ongoing now really go back, I mean, they go back over a decade, uh, if not over almost a decade and a half to the early days of these type of cyberspace operations outside of an active area of combat. And what's funny about this is, you know, what masquerades as legal issues are really policy debates. I think Nate has exactly right, which is that because we don't have a fundamental doctrine about how we want to use these capabilities and when we want to use these capabilities and whether, you know, the parade of horribles is worse for, for us than it is for them, right? You know, that's really what's paralyzing our decision-making in the space. And it masquerades as legal debates about is this covert action? Is this clandestine activity? You know, is this a violation of international law? Is this permissible under under current, you know, authorizations and, and authorities? You know, can it be X agency or Y agency? Do they need a do they need a finding? Do they need an ex- execute order? Right. I mean, all of these debates really fundamentally turn on what Nate has said, which is a, a, a disagreement or at least a lack of decision making about when and how we want to use these capabilities now that we have them and we know that they're available. And some of these things have now been resolved. Congress has taken action to resolve the covert clandestine discussion. The Trump administration, you know, sort of fundamentally changed the doctrine under which these things operate, uh, you, you know, through this uh, national security order that you guys have been discussing. Fundamentally, it goes back to this question of, you know, are we going to continue to hand ring? Are we going to take action? You know, and if we're going to take action, are we prepared to sustain the consequences of those actions? And that, I think, Nate is exactly right. That's the debate we haven't actually ever had. We've just masqueraded it and gusted it up in a series of processes and debates. And I'm not sure the solution of, well, you still have to talk to the interagency about everything you're doing and let them know if there's objection, you know, escalate it up. That's essentially the same procedure we had 15 years ago. And it's likely to hamstring active operations just as much as it did back then today as it did then. And so I worry that even though we might not have the Rube Goldberg machinery of the Obama administration, and we may not have the, the slick, easy to use methodology of the Trump administration, I'm not sure we fundamentally solved the core problem, which is we don't have a policy and plan about how to use these capabilities effectively going forward. Yeah. yeah and I'd like to go ahead. I just want to put a little finer point on that on, in terms of like how it, it manifests itself, because look at what happened under the Trump administration. You didn't see Cybercom. You know, maybe there were things we didn't know about, but you didn't see them running around the world, you know, roughing people up in cyberspace. You and, and what happens when you remove the interagency process is you put the decision making authority in the hand of Cybercom. And they they have two problems there. One, they don't have an interagency to blame for shooting down bad ideas. And two, they're now on the hook for the ramifications of the things they want to go out and do. And it puts them in a bind if they don't have top cover or at least guidance on what they can go out and do. And I think that leaves them probably still reluctant to act in some cases. And it leaves them with a bureaucracy that's ultimately unhappy with them instead of the secretary of state or whoever they want to blame for, you know, shooting down the proposal that the you know, head of Cybercom wanted them to shoot down, but put forward to the interagency anyway, because he didn't want to be blamed for it, uh, for shooting it down. And so I don't know that the decision making process really resolves this thing. And it leaves you in, you know, in some ways with a, a pretty similar outcome if you delegate or if you maintain this White House led process and everything in between. Plus, I it's think actually, it's actually a great. It's a great point because the funny thing about this is that you know where it does come down to if you do leave all the authority to Cyber Command and NSA is you have the dual hatted Commander Cyber Command and Director NSA who's got to ultimately sort out the intel gain loss problem, which nine times out of ten is at the heart of these debates about whether to undertake a given operation or not 
because the methodology of access for Intel collection is similar to the methodology of access or identical to the methodology of access for the delivery of the, of the capability. And that's, that is the fundamental challenge. And you're right. I think Nate's exactly right. They, they lose the top cover having to make that tough, hard decision. All right. We're going to try to burn through a whole bunch of stories just so that we have covered them. Uh, Jamil, the European Union uh, has adopted or is in the process, this is sort of leaked information, uh, writing a law that will essentially require that critical infrastructure CISOs build systems that can report attacks within 24 hours and uh, enforces it with the usual threats of percentages of gross fines. It sounds a lot like what the U.S. is doing, except with a tougher hammer. Well, it's exactly right. I mean, this does go down the same road in terms of reporting of incidents, but it's much worse, as you can assume the Europeans are always going to be, because they use a much bigger stick of this, another, you know, one to five percent of global turnover uh, as the fine. But also the European Union purports to set a cybersecurity standards and regulations, the kind of equipment you need to have, the kind of software you need to have. As if government regulators are going to be better than cybersecurity experts at figuring out the right technology that a given company, critical infrastructure entity or otherwise ought to bring to bear on a problem. You know, it's like the Europeans never learn the lesson from their bad ideas when it comes to regulation. They regulate in privacy, they regulate in markets, and they regulate and regulate over and over again. And they don't realize the outcomes tend to be bad, right? When you look at the U.S. and how we regulate and you realize that our technology industry has been dramatically more productive, dramatically more innovative, dramatically more successful than the Europeans. You wonder, why is that? Well, it's pretty simple. When you have bad government ideas coming down, enforced through over-heavy regulation, over-heavy-handed uh, penalties, you get bad outcomes. And here's yet another one. This Network Information Security Directive 2, it builds on the first bad idea. And here we go again. European Union takes a, a you know interesting idea in the U.S., makes it worse, implements it with more aggressive fines. And... No surprise, European companies will be once again less productive. By the way, the real challenge, though, of course, is that they will leverage these fines, not against European companies, but against American companies that operate in Europe. And it really goes back to what they really want to do, which is penalize American big tech, not really get better cyber. So it's it's actually working the way they, they hoped. Um, all right. So when the U.S. screws up, it screws up in other ways. And it looks as though the Pentagon has been giving money to small business tech startups to develop technology. They've been taking the money, and at least some of them have been saying, this is great. Thanks for all the fundamental research work. Now we're going to move to China and work with their industry. How, how real is this problem? Uh, it sounds as though it's happened more than once, Jordan. Hard to know, but it's also important to think about the flip side of if you really stop this, then what ends up happening? So SBIR, the Small Business Innovation Research Seed Fund, has been one of the ways that the Defense Department has been trying to you know, bring more emerging companies, small and medium-sized enterprises that have a lot of promise and cooler, more exciting technology than your primes into the U.S. defense establishment. And red tape is a real problem, as everyone knows, in bringing those capabilities online and allowing the Defense Department to make acquisitions in a more nimble fashion. So there was a... But isn't this, isn't this where red tape comes from? I can go through the federal acquisition regs and identify the scandal that led to that particular reg being imposed on procurement and the next one and the next one. It, it, every time there's a scandal, they think of a reg that will stop it. And uh, before you know it, uh, there's 
so much red tape that nobody really wants the money. Yeah, the pathway to hell is paved with good intentions. I mean, obviously, you don't want Defense Department money going to stuff which is just going to be absorbed into the Chinese tech ecosystem. But at the same time, you're also having to try to optimize for being uh, able to move nimbly and uh, having another thing, which is just going to make it that much harder for the Pentagon to bring in cool tech, maybe not worth making sure that like an extra 50 or 100 million dollars doesn't kind of leak out into the broader ether. I mean, you know, the the question you want to ask yourself is if you are sitting in Beijing, what is more useful to you? That marginal 50 or 100 million million dollars of technology that you're, you know, by some hook or crook squeezing out of the U.S. innovation ecosystem or shutting down one of the most promising avenues for the U.S. Defense Department to um, be able to um, uh, uh, to be able to bring in tech in the first place. And, you know, it's obviously not an either or. And there are probably ways to do this in a smart manner. But the sort of instinct of the senators who've been talking about this of, oh, we need to make sure this never happens again, building in a, a sort of comfort with error is something that I think more broadly the defense acquisition ecosystem needs to internalize. And, you know, that error is going to come in a lot of in a lot of dimensions, thinking about sort of attributable systems or more speedy acquisitions where you trade off the sort of some of the more certainty that you have with using old acquisitions mechanisms. But at the same time, it's not necessarily the right answer isn't necessarily the obvious one of make sure that under no circumstances, anything like this ever is able to happen again, because there are real consequences to prioritize that over other goals that you want to be pushing towards as you build out the framework of your acquisition ecosystem. All right. I I want to uh, mention this by way of an update. You may have heard we've talked about the social media regulatory law that Texas passed, which was a refinement of Florida's law. Florida's law was enjoined, and so was Texas's almost immediately. I thought that Judge Pittman's opinion in joining the Texas law was remarkably kind of unpersuasive and kind of lacked craftsmanship. There are clearly problems with the Texas law and lots of serious issues, but the idea that there's nothing in that law that could possibly be constitutional, which is basically what he said. He said, well, yeah, there's a severability clause here, but this sucks so bad, I'm just enjoining it all, which is you know, not exactly how injunctions are supposed to work. So I was maybe the only person following the issue who wasn't entirely surprised when the uh, Fifth Circuit lifted his injunction. We're going to hear a lot about how obviously unconstitutional this is. And if you cherry pick stuff, there's clearly stuff that that raises tough constitutional issues. But what Judge Pittman did was wrong. Uh, I don't think the Supreme Court is going to step in and say, oh, no, we want that injunction in its full and unpersuasive force to remain in effect. So we're actually going to see everybody went for broke and they lost. And now even the stuff that is constitutionally um, hard to justify is going to be tried out until a uh, final injunctive uh, hearing and determination can be made. So it's going to be fascinating. We'll get to buckle up and watch Texas engage in what Justice Brandeis called the laboratory of the states in making social policy. Don't know how it will turn out, but at least for the time being, Texas is free to try out all of these policies, including making the social media platforms into common carriers for whatever that means. So lots of interesting developments to come. And Jamil, I was struck by the fact that Google, Microsoft, and Yahoo are trying to get New York to ban search warrants that are aimed at finding people who were 
in the vicinity of the crime when it occurred or who made very specific searches for the addresses for people who were later killed. They seem to think that both of those things shouldn't be possible for law enforcement. I I have trouble imagining a world in which you don't think that that is probable cause to believe somebody might have evidence or be a, a suspect in the crime you're investigating. Right. I think the question, though, that's being debated here is whether you have the relevant cause to get that information, right? And whether, no doubt that if you had that information that that was happening, that would be probable cause for a further warrant. I think the debate is what do you need to get that data in the first instance, right? And we've seen this issue play out in the context of Carpenter and other cases at the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court itself has been taking a stepwise process in my view, in the wrong direction, um, away from enabling law enforcement to do what it needs to do uh, to get under the traditional Fourth Amendment view of the law and treating technology and large amounts of data differently as though they were a special case of the Fourth Amendment rather than just the sui generis case. And so I don't think it's surprising to see this effort afoot by the companies in order to effectuate what appears to be a trend uh, of the law in this direction at the Supreme Court level, whether it's the right trend or not, or whether it's actually an accurate understanding of the Fourth Amendment as written um, and as understood in our Constitution is a different debate. I think what you actually see happening at the court, at least, is a development of a a, a, a theory of the Fourth Amendment where you see a certain originalists come together with those who, who, who have a view of the, an evolving view of the Constitution coming together on a view of the Fourth Amendment as different than the traditional view that we've had over the past 150 plus years, uh, at least in the specific case of large scale data searches and the application of technology to some of these harder uh, problems. But at the end of the day, what the law enforcement is going to get is they're going to get the names, the names and the phone numbers of the 20 people who were within 50 feet of the shooting when it happened. How could that not be, how could you not have probable cause to want the names of those people? They're within 50 well, the feet at the sh- have- of the shooting when it happened. That is, that, that's that's so, so pretty probable to me. <laughs> well, I think, I, so I don't, read the, I don't read the companies as saying that you could, if you had a lawful probable cause-based warrant, I think what the companies are trying to avoid here but, but, is but, but, a it, it, There was a shooting. They, a guy died. He got shot. There were people around. I want to know the names of the people who are around. They're witnesses. They're suspects. Uh, all I want is their names. How can that be something where you say, oh, no, you got to have more than that? Well, I think the same question applies. Why wouldn't you be why do you need probable cause to get information from a third party about the locational data of, you know, a given phone number? Right. I mean, I think in in some ways, the location question is a similar issue uh, to the one here. You might actually argue that location is less intrusive than what's being sought here, which is the name of everybody, every human being in a given five mile radius of a crime. Not five miles. Come Um, on. This is this is this is much more fine tuned. No, no. And look, you're, sorry, you don't have to convince me. I actually think law enforcement has the right side of this debate. I think that what you see the companies doing is mirroring a trend uh, in the jurisprudence on these issues when it comes to big data and technology-enabled collection. Somehow, the courts just think that's a special case, which in my view, it just isn't. Yeah, bull hockey. What they don't like is this is expensive. This requires them to use tools and they don't get paid enough to do it. They get uh, hassled by civil society. They just don't want to do it. It's not what they uh, went into tech to do. It's day class A. And so they're trying to ban it. This privacy argument, there's no good privacy argument here. 
Well, look, on the cost side of things, Stuart, I think there's no I, I would have no concern with the government being willing and, you know, statutory authority to pay whatever the costs of the prize are in doing this work and implementing the systems they need to, like we do under Kalia, right? That doesn't strike me as problematic, right? I really think you're right on the latter issue, which is less about cost and more about ideology and philosophy and the claims they're making to their customers on privacy and the like, which have never really been true, particularly at least as with respect to the companies. And so the idea somehow that they want to make this claim on behalf of the government or with respect to the government, that seems to me, you know, just not a fair argument. Okay, so I promised we were moving fast, but we're not. But we'll try again. There is a pretty good uh, report out by Margin Research about all of the Chinese um, uh, military industrial complex in cyber war or cybersecurity, maybe more, both offensive and defensive. I don't know if you had a chance to look at it, but it looked to me as though they've really developed a complete ecosystem now. Yeah, I do think so. I mean, I think that we've long known that the Chinese uh, were progressing forward aggressively in this domain. And this research just simply outlines that fact, something that we've known for a while. And the government has sort of intimated, although not disclosed publicly, I think this now open source research uh, demonstrates credibly that uh, like the United States and Russia, China now has a capability in this domain that is sort of end to end and, and, and a full fledged ecosystem which just simply underlines the fact that we have got to be better at the defensive efforts on our side. We need to be prepared for cyber to be used as a tool uh, of warfare, both in the context of other full-on military campaigns, but also as its own independent capability. And that means that as a nation, we've got to figure out how to bring industry, government together to really effectively defend the nation. Because doing what we do today, which is leaving every single company alone, whether large or small, whether that's Citibank and, and Walmart on one end or a small mom and pop provider on the other, is not an effective methodology for defending the nation when it comes to nation state attacks in the cyber domain. It hasn't worked to date. Keeping that going, going forward is a bad idea when we realize that the Russians, the Chinese, and frankly, up and coming players like Iran, North Korea, are and do have this capability to come at us in a serious way. Okay, now I'm going to ask you the question that I unfairly uh, asked Nate, which is, it's been a year since the Biden administration put in a very detailed cyber executive order about everything the government was going to do. And the returns on how uh, much of that they've done on, on the deadline is kind of discouraging. Look, I mean, Stuart, the government is a big behemoth, right? And we've known about the challenges that the government faces in the cybersecurity domain. And frankly, just in the IT domain writ large for decades, right? We've known that the government is way behind. Our systems are old and decaying and not capable. And on the cyber front, the government, you know, we already know how vulnerable industry is. And the government moving slower and less efficiently is going to be even more vulnerable. Now, you might say, well, the president has the ability with the stroke of a pen, as the Trump administration did, as now that the Biden administration has done, to try and change that. But the reality of implementation, as we all know, is a different story. Right? Yeah, but, you Getting know, look, these agencies uh, let me push back on that. It, it, there is only one thing that the president can do, that the National Security Council can do. It, they can say, this is what I want, and this is the day by which I want it. They can't actually execute anything. They've got to get somebody else to execute, and the way they get them to do it is to set a deadline. And if people just blow off the deadlines, then uh, what the uh, White House has done becomes pretty meaningless. And some of these deadlines look pretty blown off. Well, agreed. So fair enough that, that there needs to be enforcement deadlines. Otherwise, just like any other uh, you know, deterrence-based scenario, if you don't levy a penalty, you're not going to get effective compliance. So there needs to be an internal government penalty. And the way to do that right within the administration is to get is to call the cabinet secretaries to the White House and call them to account. Why didn't you meet these deadlines? Why haven't you done the things we told you to do? How much time do you need? And we're going to call you back here every week until you do it, right? 
The yep. president has to be willing to do that and use his political capital to do that. So we'll see if that happens. National Cyber Director Chris Inglis just appointed a principal deputy director and two new two, two new deputies, all with significant experience in the government. So we'll see if that works. Second, you know, Congress can play a role here too, right? Just because it's an executive order doesn't mean Congress can't call the agency to account and say, hey, where are you on compliance? Why haven't you met it? And then bring the White House in to say, why haven't you enforced compliance with your own executive order? So you can see it's coming at it from two directions. These stories are the beginning of possibly that process. But at the end of the day, if the president wants compliance with his executive order, he's got to bring the cabinet secretaries to account and call them and their deputies to account for these failures. Okay. So one of the few effective, and I won't say it's particularly effective, but it has some effect. International agreements on cybersecurity is the Budapest Convention on Cybercrime, which has been kicking around a long time. It was a Council of Europe product from the 90s, uh, and it basically internationalized U.S. law from the 80s. So it's old. It's just been updated, and there's a second additional protocol that is aimed at eliminating some of the barriers to getting information quickly. Essentially, it's going to allow governments to go directly to service providers instead of going through MLAP procedures in many cases uh, to get information they need. Uh, potentially pretty important. Uh, you can judge its likely effectiveness by the number of whiny civil society articles being written about how they weren't really consulted in, uh, sufficiently. But it's worth watching. It, it won't take effect for quite a while. Other countries have to join. The U.S. hasn't joined, I don't think. They've just said they intend to. Uh, so it will be interesting. It's worth watching. Jamil, there's also a study out now trying to measure the effect of GDPR. This is, of course, one of your favorite points and mine, too, that the Europeans are great at regulating their own industries into oblivion. And this suggests that after GDPR was adopted, the number of apps in app stores dropped by about a third as people just couldn't make the transition to GDPR compliance. I do, although, you know, it's hard to disaggregate what uh, the cause was, right? Some of these things are actually, it's actually good that we've lost some of these apps because they did not uh, protect privacy in the way they should. And so that there's a benefit there, right? The hard thing to disaggregate is how much innovation did you lose when you lost this huge amount of apps, right? Some were just problematic, weren't willing to comply, weren't able to comply. Some were already out of date and were just needed to be aged off. Remember, the App Store in this case is the Android App Store, the more open ecosystem than the Apple App Store, which is a little more cabin and constrained, and therefore sort of you see more apps typically updated on a more regular basis. And so in the context of the Android App Store, I think what would be, what's going to be really helpful is a deeper dive into how much of these apps we lost that were actually productive. And I think there is a really important uh, takeaway, which is overregulation can harm innovation, can harm leading forward, leading forward capabilities. But I think we're still, it's still early days to tell whether how much of this was actually privacy uh, protecting how much of these were just old, aged out apps and how much of these were actual innovative, valuable apps that we lost access to. But it's a bad sign, nonetheless, when you lose a huge amount of apps with one law uh, being implemented in place. I thought it was interesting that this clearly was a German-Austrian effort. So this does not appear to be a, a U.S.-biased approach. This is a sign of a little bit of dissent inside Europe to the view that uh, you just can't have too much privacy. Yeah. So I thought it was interesting. I agree with you that we need a little bit more research than just this one study. And, I, and you know, and Stuart, you know, just to that point, I mean, that's, and we see the same pushback coming with this, with the CSAM material, right? You know, Europe likes to talk about privacy when it's convenient for them and it helps them beat up on American providers. But when it comes to protecting their own publics against things they care about, like CSAM or disinformation or the like, 
Europe is not afraid to take very aggressive regulatory measures in, in ways that may undermine privacy. And so, you know, I think that our, you know, American organizations should be very careful when they look and say, hey, look to Europe for the right regulation. You might not like what you get in all circumstances. Yep. And last, I just, I don't think we can finish the discussion of the week's news without acknowledging just how much of a bloodbath tech stocks took, and especially cryptocurrencies, where even Coinbase has to release guidance saying, you know, if we go bankrupt, you're going to lose everything here. Right? And of course, we're not going to do that. But the idea that you have to worry about that and the collapse of some of the stablecoin infrastructures, I think that's going to change the policy climate for at least the next several years, because these companies won't have as much money to spend. They won't have that glow that goes with having made everybody rich. And I think particularly, there are going to be a lot of angry people who put money into uh, uh, cryptocurrency. So this will probably mean a little bit more enthusiasm for regulation coming out of at least this Congress, who knows about the next, and certainly this administration. So I just didn't want to ignore the fact that even though it's economic news, it's going to make policy. Okay, Jordan, Jamil, Nate, thank you. This was a long one, but a lot of fun for our audience. If you know somebody who ought to be working for the podcast, we are in the market for a part-time sound engineer and substantive advisor, right? Just send a CV or a bio to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for our music. And this has been episode 407 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Mm-hmm.